I think the biggest challenge ahead is actually in terms of regulations of some sort of joint regulatory environment, which licenses different kinds of space activities. Some countries do have it in the region, some of them don't. Unfortunately, Singapore still does not have a comprehensive space policy, but I think it's a matter of time. I think many countries are waiting to see what the private sector comes comes up with before they commit themselves to to making any policy adjustments or or even rolling out a whole new policy altogether. Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about space and small sats and the unexpected challenges of scaling these kinds of firms. And my guest today is Simon Gavush, which has an amazing spelling, G-W-O-Z-D-Z. And he is the founder of Equatorial Space Industries, which is a commercial space launch operator. And his focus is developing a dedicated nanosat launch vehicle in Southeast Asia. You're in Singapore? Is that right? Okay. And I really wanted to get folks on who are outside of that um, North American or European centric um, theater of operations, I guess. And uh, um, this week I I actually recorded with Dr. Rick Fleeter, who has a lot of experience um, in in Southeast Asia with launches and that. And so I learned a lot just from listening to him. So I'm really pleased to have you on, Simon. Let me begin with this. Why do we need another small set launch vehicle uh, out in the world here? There seem to be tons and tons of founders developing these. Well, glad you asked because, uh, well, so far there is only one which is successful. And, uh, you know, uh, I've, I got this question a lot. And uh, personally, I think there is going to be more of a market segmentation rather than a single dominant player in, uh, okay. in terms of small set launcher. Uh, I mean, if you look at, at some of the offerings of, of various companies, they may be focusing on a particular niche. Uh, we have our own. We are based in Southeast Asia. We have direct access to some near equatorial launch sites. Mm-hmm. And we see a growing interest in a low inclination, low F orbit, uh, which is otherwise pretty difficult to get into, especially from North America. Uh, so we have a bit of an advantage in that sense. And on top of that, we have a clear technological differentiation. And the beautiful thing about uh, working with propulsion systems, which could be adapted to launch vehicles, is also deep space propulsion uh, potential with mm-hmm. them. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, I think we are still yet to meet this uh, this market limitation in terms of uh, of, of uh, small launchers. Uh, there has been some pretty public, uh, I mean, troubles with some companies before. Uh, I think they have more to do with. Uh, other challenges rather than with market limitations. And uh, we do maintain our own uh, uh, market intelligence to some degree. Uh, we keep track of what's going on. And uh, I mean, you know, if you sent electrons to cover the entire market right now, it would take probably around 750 to cover the entire demand, which is coming up in the next 10 years, which would be challenging for any single company. So I think there will be, there will be room for multiple different players. Uh, especially with some particular specialization. And uh, the lucky thing for us is that we have a very clear technological differentiation, which, is, uh, which directly translates uh, to cost per launch. Hmm. So, uh, so uh, that's why, that's why uh, we are quite confident that, that this, this is not going to be uh, as challenging market-wise as, as most people would think. Okay. So some differentiator there, you believe you do have some things that uh, competitors cannot offer, or at least as easily. And there is plenty of market demand to go around. That's true. Well, so, yeah. 
you know, I'm always interested in startups and the challenges of, of being a startup where you got to go out and get skills and develop capabilities and figure out like, what exactly are we going to do here? What kind of stages have you gone through to get to this point with your startup and what has been the most challenging? Yeah, uh, you know, I think the most challenging part, all things considered, was how to evolve uh, from what essentially started as a dorm room project into mm -hmm. a professional company. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it really takes a toll to, uh, in many different areas of, of your personal life, of, uh, of your professional life. And uh, at one point, you, you as a CEO have to really grow up and uh, start being much more uh, uh, you know, pragmatic about uh, developing the company. So uh, in our case, we've, we, we've been through a lot of changes, especially in the last one year. Uh, otherwise, we would not have progressed to the point where we are currently. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, broad strokes wise, I think the biggest challenge is to continuously evolve and rise up to the challenge of, of progressing to different levels of developing your company. Uh, sounds pretty general. Yeah, I know. Uh, but, uh, but that's, that's the truth really. Okay. Well, without giving away any state secrets or, you know, anything really <laughs> terrible, maybe um, I'd, I'd love to hear about a challenge. Um, maybe how did you find talent, for example, the right kind of talent? Talent, right. So uh, that's the interesting thing. You know, the, one of the great things with working on a project which is as audacious and some would say inspiring, uh, because ultimately we're talking about space access for, a, for an entire region which does not have any uh, indigenous uh, launch technology right now. So one of the great things is uh, that after the entire initiative was, uh, was first publicized, we, we never really had to complain about lack of, of interest uh, from engineers, from even students who wanted to get involved. And uh, we had plenty, plenty of, of interested voices who wanted to get involved. Uh, that said, yes, Southeast Asia, because of its own uh, economic situation, does not have much of... Uh, of uh, well, heritage in terms of launch systems and uh, chemical rocket propulsion systems. So that's a problem which we had to solve. Luckily, some very helpful people came along and uh, they wanted to drive the initiative for us. So uh, uh, while developing our own local talent, we have, uh, we have access to knowledge of people who have decades of experience. And our CTO, uh, an Australian national, uh, Jamie Anderson, is doing fantastic work building up the, uh, uh, the technical side of the company. So, uh, yeah, long story short, uh, it was a challenge, but once you have something that's truly interesting to do, then I think the right talent will, will definitely come along, whatever it is that you're okay. doing. All right, Simon. So you're in the position of um, being an employer now. And there's yeah. this, <laughs> I, was, I was talking to uh, a doctor from... Uh, uh, Texas University earlier this week, Amelia Gregg, who um, is working with a lot of graduate students in that. And we chatted for a few minutes about what students and, and folks who are about to graduate from, you know, technical universities and come out with a some sort of space engineering degree, right? Uh, but what can they do during their time in, in the school and as they're about to graduate to get on your radar because I'm sure you get deluged by all these resumes. I do, and I, I'm not even really anything to do with that, right? And uh, I'm like, how, how do they stand out? Because they, they kind of look uniform, and I really would like to get them some advice from your employer perspective. Well, uh, you know, 
there are two sides to it, really. You know, from one side, I was an undergraduate myself when uh, ESI was first started. So, uh, so I have particular soft spot for people who are who have no prior experience in the field. But that said, you also have to balance that with uh, with the senior staff that has experience. Uh, so, in terms of the um, of the either fresh graduates of, or people who are still in school, what I like to see is. I mean, of course, having some hands-on skills is important. Uh, ultimately, we're building hardware. So, uh, mm -hmm. so if you know how to put two things together and solve a problem, that's a particularly helpful thing in, this, in the entire project. Uh, I would say passion is important, but it's not everything. Uh, what I like to do, but it's not exactly a prerequisite, uh, I like to quiz our prospective candidates uh, about, uh, about history of spaceflight. Mm. or what's going on in the market right now. I think that's, that's a very clear way to tell who's really interested and who's just trying their luck. Uh, so even if someone does not necessarily have uh, plenty of experience, uh, if you see that true interest in the industry, you know that they will commit to, to rising up to the challenge. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, that's a very important point to, uh, to look out for in, in uh, prospective team members. Right. I, I love that. Yeah. So passion is yeah. one thing. I really want to be in space. Wow. Well, that's great. And yeah, what have I'm you done to yeah. translate yeah. that into reality here, right? Exactly. About learning how to, to fit in. And, and yeah, exactly. And it doesn't cost anything to uh, mm -hmm. stay in touch with the industry, to know which companies are currently active, what's going on, what's the, what different angles, different launch service providers have. And uh, how generally the whole thing works. So, uh, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a very fair deal. You know, uh, I mm -hmm. mean, ultimately everyone starts from somewhere. And us being a new company, uh, we are more than happy to have fresh graduates on board. Uh, but are they the real? I mean, are they the the right fit? That's mm -hmm. that's a different story, and that's a very good way to uh, to tell. Okay. You have, your firm has qualified for something called the Deep Tech Startups Top 500. Um, and it's a worldwide competition in that. Tell us about that and what opportunities it brings. Well, uh, yeah, so we got some accolades uh, mm -hmm. in the last two years, which is, uh, you know, ex extremely comforting uh, from, from, uh, from the business development perspective. I think, uh, you know, especially in our position when you have no uh, prior, uh, you know, heritage in your country, to get an accolade such as such as this from Hello Tomorrow 2018 challenge, uh, it really serves as a great validation uh, and as a great booster to the credibility. You know, it shows that you're not just a wannabe, but at least you are qualified wannabe. Uh, so it definitely helps you with the early stage fundraising. Uh, it shows your prospective clients that you know, of course, you may not be ready for contracts yet, but at least you're up and coming. So they will keep you on the radar. And uh, that's, that's pretty much exactly what happened to us uh, when we got accolades such as uh, the top 500 deep tech startups uh, from Hello Tomorrow. So we are very grateful for the chance. Uh, and uh, yeah, it definitely helps you with, uh, with further progression uh, in developing the, the whole company. So, uh, so that's, that's definitely an important thing. But that said, you cannot uh, rest on your laurels. Hmm. If you get a validation of that sort, that's great. It, but you still have plenty more work to do ahead of you. So uh, it's important not to uh, not to appreciate the kind of opportunities you get, but never uh, take it as a as a sign of a, of a victory. Hmm. It's not there yet. 
Okay. So validation and uh, opening okay. some doors, but not, yes, not a parade yet. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a victory yeah, lap. Okay. It opens a door, the rest is up to you. Right. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted i'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, i'm able to so those will be some goodies that are in there as well so if you're interested in that go to coldstartech.com msb and join us on the mission to make space boring now back to the interview so let's see um let me hop into the the fundraising for a moment i'm curious from your point of view what was the most critical thing that uh, that that venture capitalists were looking for from you? Well, the funny thing is, I don't think VCs really distinguish between a space startup and any other. Hmm. Ultimately, it's about delivering value. It's about growing in, in share value by serving your customers the best you can and uh, producing something that's, that sells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so ultimately, I don't think there is much distinction between a rocket company and a, a, an app company, really. The, the, mm-hmm. diffi- the difference really is in terms of how much time and money you have to spend before you get to a point where you have paying customers. Uh, in a typical startup, you want to build an MVP straight away mm-hmm. and uh, start getting some traction, get experience from it, and learn how to improve on, on your product. That may take a couple of months if you have the right team. Uh, but in our case, it, take, it takes a couple of years before you see any actual revenue. So, uh, uh, so there is a particular breed of VCs who do understand uh, the, the, the duration it takes to, to reach a point of profitability. And I think that's a bigger challenge than, uh, than proving that than a rocket company can be profitable and can be successful. I think there's plenty of examples uh, to go around right now. There's been a even more examples of companies getting more and more funding, uh, inching closer to a launch, and developing really amazing technology in uh, in the process. Uh, so, I think, I mean, there is this mental block in uh, in some countries in uh, around the world that space tech is only accessible to superpowers and mm-hmm. to huge companies with plenty of resources. But that does not necessarily have to be the case. And uh, in Singapore specifically, we see more and more interest from VCs who are traditionally dealing with, uh, with, with less audacious, not really audacious, but less uh, uh, oddball kind of startups. And uh, there is more interest in space tech. And uh, the real game changer is when you can show them figures. How is this company going to be successful? What's your market? What's the marketing plan? What are your costs? What's the budget? And... Mm-hmm. It really becomes very, very uh, similar to any other company. So uh, I think there is a growing interest. Uh, as the scene over here matures, there is, uh, there is also more information to go around and uh, investors are, are taking note. 
So that's uh, that's definitely a great development. Okay, L let's dig into that a little bit more. It is equatorial space industries. You are in Singapore, and and as we you know talked about, that is a different environment than the North American or European centric theaters. So I'm curious, what differences, if any, that you've noticed between the Southeast Asian area and and those other areas? Well, you know, uh, I like to compare this uh, this situation with uh, smartphones, actually. Hmm. I mean, okay. in some countries of Southeast Asia, very few people have landlines because there is no terrestrial infrastructure for it. Hmm. Uh, not so, of course, not in Singapore or Malaysia or Thailand, but in some other countries. Uh, but that does not deter people from owning smartphones and even having 4G. Uh, so I think we are jumping through the entire development curve right now. Hmm. Uh, the ability to... Es especially small set technology is proliferating rapidly and uh, we can take a shortcut and get involved in the same game as everybody else because of the new technologies and the accessibility to components, to knowledge, the expertise and uh, more and more the funding. So uh, of course we don't compare ourselves to North America. You guys have all the cool things right now uh, but uh, I think we will get there eventually. It's, it's a matter of, of of, of strategizing in a in a rational enough way and uh, leveraging all the resources you can possibly find. And uh, in the next 10 years, I would definitely like to see Southeast Asia's space tech scene uh, reach a point of maturity. Of course, we would love to see our own uh, launch capability as well. Uh, but we are actually looking even beyond that. We are looking into uh, supporting and, uh, and contributing to... Uh, uh, to deep space exploration yeah, at some point. Okay. What kind of infrastructure do you think that is needed in, in Southeast Asia to bump you along, as you're saying? Does there need to be more ground operations or, or something else? All right. So the ground segment, especially in terms of satellite communications, is actually pretty good right now. Uh, Indonesia, for instance, has been developing it since the 60s because mm -hmm. of its geography. It had to rely on satellite communications and otherwise it would not be able to control its own territory. So, uh, so space tech is not actually new to Southeast Asia. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been around. Uh, but, but private access to space technologies is, uh, is an up-and-coming field right now. Um, I think ground infrastructure is definitely getting better. Uh, of course, in our case, we'd like to see a, local, a regional spaceport somewhere. And there are a few up-and-coming options. One in Australia, which is not technically Southeast Asia, but it's very close. Uh, it's closer than from Singapore to uh, Northern Territory than it is from, uh, it's probably a similar distance than from, from uh, New York City to LA. So uh, we can think of it as the same region still. Um, I think the biggest challenge ahead is actually in terms of regulations, of some sort uh. of joint regulatory uh, environment, uh, which licenses different kinds of space activities. Uh, some countries do have it in the region, some of them don't. Unfortunately, Singapore still does not have a, a comprehensive space policy, but I think it's a matter of time. Uh, and yeah, I would give it a few more years. I think, I think many countries are waiting to see what the private sector comes up, comes up with before they commit themselves to, uh, to making any policy adjustments or, or even rolling out the, a whole new policy altogether. Okay. Now, this is very interesting to me. So, so the opening up of, of space opportunities from what has traditionally been high capital government investiture to commercial private industry and those opportunities. Okay. I'm going to have a bunch of space lawyers on 
<laughs> so I'll right. be able to explore these questions with them. So if you, if you want to shoot me some questions after, after the show sometime, uh, I'm going to have them on over the next month or so. And we'll be able to get their opinion uh, on on these things and see what they have to say because that's a that's a whole new area for me. I know that space law is really loosey goosey and nobody's really sure. You know, talking about space, right? That's the last thing that you have in mind when you're talking about all that. But unfortunately, it's it's a huge part of of the business. Right. Right. Okay, well, let's finish up with capabilities here. What, what expertise is locally available to you that, that people might find surprising, and, and how have you gone about accessing that? Well, uh, Singapore has, for a very long time, been a very strong manufacturer of, of semi- semiconductors. Hmm. And if you think about components used in satellites especially, uh, they're in the direct lineage from semiconductors. If you know how to put together electronics, you can make satellite subsystems. Uh, so we have a very strong uh, expertise in terms of satellite development. As I mentioned earlier, not so much in terms of, of chemical rocket propulsion, but that is also changing. Uh, we have people who do go to study abroad and who even take internships or, uh, or exchange programs in countries which, uh, which do have this expertise. And they get to learn and develop things based on that. Uh, in terms of more novel propulsion methods, including hole thrusters, for instance, we do have a very prominent local company which recently secured some funding, uh, Alienia, and uh, I know the I know the CEO Mark Lim very well, and he's a, he's a uh, extremely ambitious and, and professional guy. So the things, uh, you know, what we don't currently know, we are we are making up with our drive and desire to improve and to build all those things. And uh, if you look. I mean, lots of, of uh, rocket technology information is, is available on the internet. Mm-hmm. So if you, have the, if you have the interest, if you have the drive and the desire to build something based on that, you can definitely find the necessary information. And that's what we see not just from, from the core team at, at ESI, but also from people who are interested to join or who have been volunteering with us or who has been uh, working with other companies. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think expertise-wise, of course, Electronics is the core right now, but it's changing. We have more and more diversity in terms of talent and the, the, the experience with different technological systems. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. There's layers and, and heat dissipation, all these important things that oh, yeah. transfer from one field <laughs> to the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very important. Okay. Well, Simon, um, if, if folks want to find out more about you, where should they go? What should they do? Sure. So we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, but if you want to, to, to get all of them, you can go to our website, www.equatorialspace.com. And uh, from there, you can see all the links to, different, uh, to our different social media pages. Or you can drop us an email if you're interested to find out more. So please do fire away if you have any interest. And I'll do my best to respond ASAP. All right. Simon Gavouche of Equatorial Space Industries and uh, equatorialspace.com was the website address. Thanks for being here today. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.